a description of the life of the Goswamis. The Goswamis were Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's principal disciples in the early 1500s to the late 1500s during that. This is in North India in the province of Uttar Pradesh in a, a little village called Vrindavan, which today there are about 5,000 temples. 5,000 temples in this 24 mile square mile area. When the, when the Goswamis went there back then, it was all forest. It was all grown over. And um, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu uh, asked them to excavate the places of Krishna pilgrimage there. And then they made Vrindavan their headquarters and wrote books. They wrote the bhakti texts. The essential texts of devotion were written by the Goswamis of Vrindavan, two of whom were principal, Rupa and his older brother Sanatan Goswami. They were, had been quite well-to-do, actually. They were born in Brahmin families. They had been working for the Muslim magistrate of the time um, and earning decent income, very good income for the day. Uh, and then the magistrate recognized that they weren't coming to work. I was wondering, where, <laughs> where are they? So he sent someone to kind of spy on them at home and saw that they were studying the Srimad Bhagavatam, the book that contains the most uh, vivid and detailed description of the life of Krishna, the love of his devotees. And uh, eventually they tendered their resignation because they heard that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was on earth in Navadweep in South India and they traveled to where Mahaprabhu was and um, when they saw him by this time Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had become a sannyasi uh, he only lived 48 years a very, very short life. He passed the last 24 or 26 years of his life in Jagannath Puri um, in Orissa on the banks of the ocean there. And he would swoon. And the stories of Mahaprabhu's ecstasies are really quite uh, vivid. So in Rupa and Sanatan, Mahaprabhu found the people who could codify the the text, the wisdom of the Vedic text. So what we study when we study Bhagavad Gita is actually the understanding of the Gita as it's come down from these great bhakti teachers. You know, there are many different editions of the Gita, but these were the people who embodied that deepest uh, love for Krishna. So their, their interpretation, their understanding is what we what we study here. It's good to see you all again. Um, a couple of notices before we get going. Um, 
if you want to go to see these places, yeah. well, I'm, I'm going to pass this around. These are flyers announcing um, a retreat that's coming up in January that my dear friend Hari Kirtan, who teaches yoga in, he's a Jiva Mukti teacher in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's leading a retreat um, that includes four days at Radhanath Swami's Echo Village, two days in Mumbai at the Radha Gopinath Temple, two days in, ja- in Jaipur, and four days in Vrindavan. So I thought that would be of interest to some of you, so I copied that. And um, here is the announcement for Ian. Have you all gotten one of these? No? Um, would you pass those around, please? This is uh, Ian McKay, John, I mentioned him to you earlier. Uh, that's in very small type, describes something about his program coming up. I think that's. Huh? Uh, I think so. I'm not sure. If it, maybe it'll save him. I don't. I wouldn't want to misrepresent. <laughs> um, so we're coming back to Bhagavad Gita after a long absence. Um, we had a guest two weeks ago, Dhanudar Swami, and then last week. It is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to call and find out. Probably not, but I don't know. We'll find out. Because <laughs> it is, yes, indeed. Good price. Um, and then uh, last week, uh, were any of you here for Ananta Dave's presentation? No. Okay. Yeah. Was that, was that nice? Yeah, good. Was he teaching about the importance of deities? I mean, what was that about? What was he explaining? Well, he was talking more about the story about his question his father at the time his father died. Huh. And his father had Yeah, we all get the wake-up call one way or another. Um, well, what have you been up to? Have you been playing at the at the mm-hmm. church? Uh, yeah, I've been playing at the church. You always said I play at the church. It's one of the many things I do. I, 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 I think of many other things, like uh, teach. I teach two days a week. Teach. What do you teach? Music to children of all ages. I, I make films, I produce full-length feature movies. I turn down film office rolling movies that want me to go to like Jackson, Mississippi or Montreal. But that's another one where you get these film offers and then they expect you to pay them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that doesn't include the airfare. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, we had a great Mother's Day in the church. Lots of mothers there. 
<laughs> well, someday we're going to show up. Someday. someday we're going to show up. In fact, there are a couple of things that I was going to suggest. One is that we visit the church. This is a, from what I understand, everything you've told me about it, it's one of those really exciting places where, you know, the spirit just moves everybody there. And the Marathon Baptist Temple is three hemispheres. Every Sunday at 11 o'clock. Every Sunday at 11. So that's one thing we could do together. There's another thing that we could do together. I want to do that. Um, Somebody sent me today an announcement of a play. I hope I brought the papers on this. Um, The Bhagavad Gita is being staged here in New York. Huh? It's at a theater downtown. Uh, I thought for certain I had brought the, the announcement about it. Maybe I'm, it's one of those things I'm looking at it and I'm not seeing it, right? Well, I don't see it. I must be looking at it, but I don't see it. So I will send that around maybe as an email. But I thought we could go to that on Friday... Because it's only Thursday through Sunday, I think. And I thought we might go see this performance on May 30th. Does that sound of interest? It's, it's, a, it's I think, a four or five person staged enactment of the Bhagavad Gita by a Brazilian company. The performance is in English, but the actors are Brazilian. So if that's of interest, let me know and I'll send the word around. It's a downtown theater. I think the performance starts, usually they start at 8, 7.30 or 8. And maybe we'd all have dinner first and then go to a show. Right? That'd be nice. Okay. That's a Friday. Yeah. So if you let me know about that. Um, the verse in the Bhagavad Gita that we're reading today is in the sixth chapter. It's verse number 8. Really fascinating Concepts that um, I think we have a rousing discussion about this one. Since uh, we have one book, I'll, I'll read this to you, and then we can all uh, recite, recite the verse together. So this is Bhagavad Gita, chapter 6, uh, verse number 8. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya 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 Jnana Vigyana Triptatma Jnana Vigyana Triptatma. Trying to want to repeat that with me. Jnana Vigyana Triptatma Kutasto Vijitendriyaha. Kutasto Vijitendriyaha. Yukta Ityutshate Yogi. Yukta Ityutshate Yogi. Sama Lostrashma Kanchanaha. 
Sama lo strash makanchana. <laughs> so the translation of this verse is a person is said to be established in self-realization and is called a yogi or mystic when he, fully, when he is fully satisfied by virtue of acquired knowledge and realization. Such a person is situated in transcendence and is self-controlled. He sees everything. This is the line that got to me. He sees everything, whether it be pebbles, stones, or gold, as the same. Now this is why we have to discuss this as a group. There's no way that we could possibly understand the idea of seeing pebbles and gold as the same. How do you do that? Here's the purport uh, by Prabhupada. Book knowledge without realization of the supreme truth is useless. This is stated as followed as follows in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sintu, which is one of the texts of the Goswamis of Vrindavan. This is a seminal text in Bhakti by Rupa Goswami. Rupa Goswami wrote, No one can understand the transcendental nature of the name, form, qualities, and pastimes of Sri Krishna through his materially contaminated senses. Only when one becomes spiritually saturated by transcendental service to the Lord are the transcendental name, form, qualities, and pastimes of the, of the Lord revealed to him. The point being that book learning is not sufficient for understanding truth. Books can point you in the direction, but knowledge of ultimate truth is realized, and that realization comes through service, through a giving of oneself to truth. This Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada continues, is the science of Krishna consciousness. No one can become Krishna conscious simply by mundane scholarship. I've, over the years, I've known some people who started on the path to Krishna and decided that they were to veer into the academic dimension. So they studied the Sanskrit and became scholars and fell away from the devotional path. There is a risk in becoming too educated. And that is that everything becomes subject to interpretation. The dimension that's required here is one of devotion to understand Krishna. One must be fortunate enough to associate with a person who is in pure consciousness. A Krishna conscious person has realized knowledge by the grace of Krishna because he is satisfied with pure devotional service. There's a lovely story. I, can we close that now? Thank you. Of um, when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu uh, was traveling through South India. After Chaitanya Mahaprabhu became a sannyasi, a renunciant, he was very young at the time. He was only 24 uh, it drove his mother crazy. I mean, she, the idea that her son would you know, go off on his own. So he loved his mother very much, so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll stay wherever you tell me to stay. <laughs> I'm going to travel, but then I'll, I'll make my headquarters someplace nearby where we can visit. So uh, he did that. 
Um, but when he traveled through South India, he met a, a very devoted soul, seated under a tree, reading the Bhagavad Gita upside down. And he asked him what he was doing, and there were some Brahmins, scholarly types on the side, kind of laughing at this person holding the book upside down. And the man said to him, well, my spiritual master told me that I should read the Bhagavad Gita every day, but I'm illiterate. I don't know how to read. So I'm just holding this book and I'm thinking about Krishna and how much he loved his servant, his devotee Arjuna, that he, that he voluntarily became Arjuna's chariot driver. He drove Arjuna's chariot into battle. The supreme Godhead became the servant of his servant because the love between them was so intense and it makes me weep, it makes me cry. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu lifted him up and embraced him and said, you are the true knower of the Bhagavad Gita. Naturally, indirectly, putting all of those Brahmins on the sidelines to shame. So here it's said, by realized knowledge, one becomes perfect. By transcendental knowledge, one can remain steady in his convictions. But by mere academic knowledge, one can be easily deluded and confused by apparent contradictions. The world is a confusing place. Things can really... Uh, all you've got to do is read the newspapers. That's all you've got to do. You want reasons to be an atheist? Just read the New York Times. It's so... How is it possible that there's any kind of purpose or divine order or supreme being behind all of this? It's so horrible what goes on in this world. How can anyone in their right mind think that there's a caring, feeling divinity behind all of this? How could such a divinity allow all of this to, to happen? So there's confusion if you just take things on face value. And here is a an important reminder in this purport that it is the by mere academic knowledge one can be easily deluded and confused by apparent contradictions it is the realized soul who is actually self-controlled because he is surrendered to Krishna he is transcendental because he has nothing to do with mundane scholarship for him mundane scholarship and mental speculation which may be as good as gold to others, are of no greater value than pebbles or stones. Now we have Prabhupada's take on this particular verse when Krishna is telling Arjuna that the self-realized soul sees everything, whether it be pebbles, stones, or gold, as the same. And the example that Prabhupada is giving is scholarship. Scholarship may be very important in some circles, I know at Hofstra, for example, there are courses I'm not allowed to teach because I don't have a PhD. It has nothing to do with qualifications other than academic. If you don't have the letters at the end of your name, you can't get into the club. It's that simple. Right. It's exactly the opposite in wisdom circles. In wisdom circles, you may not be able to read your own name 
Prabhupada's teacher, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, was the greatest scholar of his age. He was, they called him the lion guru. He was terrifying. Scholars heard he was coming, they would run away because his erudition was so profound. His knowledge of the Sanskrit text was so deep. His guru was an illiterate. Gorkhasur Das Babaji could not read. And yet Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati recognized in him. This, this Gorkhasur was, he was a, 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 what we call a, um, an avidut. Uh, is like acting like a crazy person. He lived under an abandoned rowboat. He ate his food out of a human skull that he collected from a cemetery. Um, and in order to chase people away because he had something of a reputation of being a great holy man, he found a, a suit and a, an umbrella that somebody had discarded and he would walk through town in a suit and carrying an umbrella over his arm so that people would think he's a pretender. Aha, uh -huh, he's not really a great soul. Look at him parading around like a rich man. So they would leave him alone. And he accepted no one as a disciple. No one. This was the only person that Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Goswami, this erudite scholar, truly, truly, as a young man, he substituted for his father, his father who was the head of the Vaishnava community in the mid-1800s, was ill and could not attend a gathering of scholars who had come from all over India to discuss the concept of initiation. Now this is where it's very important. Who can be initiated as a Brahmin? Who can actually be a teacher? The caste crowd, the, the entrenched powers, still to this day, say that you have to be born into a Brahmin family. You have to have that caste lineage in order to be yourself a Brahmin. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu completely dispelled that idea. Kiba Bipra, Kiba Nyasi, Shudra Keinoi, this is Bengali and I don't speak it very well. He says, whether you are born, if you're born into a low class or outcast family, or whether you're a Brahmin, uh, a learned scholar, a Vipra, uh, a sannyasi, or nansi, whatever you may be, um, if you know Krishna, you are the topmost rung of spiritualist. So Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati substituted for his father at this gathering where the caste Brahmins were defending their exclusive right to the mantle of priesthood. And Bhaktisiddhanta, who was barely out of his teens, maybe he was 20, 21 years old, um, uh, the name of his paper, I think, was O Brahmani, O Vaishnavi. Who is the Brahman? Who is the Vaishnava? And he, by reference to the scriptures, proved that if someone is a devotee of Krishna, if someone has given his life to the service of God, he is automatically higher than a Brahman. And he gave umpteen references from the 
different texts to the point where the, 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 the caste Brahmins were furious that you know, he had shown them up. This, this young unknown had come in and completely defeated their arguments. This Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati took Gorkashore Das Babaji as his spiritual master because Gorkashore's depth of love for Krishna was so great. So it's not the academic understanding of these texts, it's the devotional understanding of these texts that matters. And they're two very, very different realms. So for example, let's take this line in this verse. The, the realized person, the self-controlled transcendentalist, sees everything, whether it be pebbles, stones, or gold, as the same. Now there's two ways of understanding this kind of equanimity. The word in Sanskrit is sama. And you'll find this word throughout the Bhagavad Gita. It's a very, very important concept. Pandita samadarshanaha. Elsewhere in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna that the pandit, the real, truly learned person, samadar, has a darshan, darshan, samadar, sees all living creatures as equal. Cows, Brahmins, dogs, people who eat dogs, he sees them all as the same. Elsewhere there's a verse, uh, samatvam yoga uchate, that your yoga practice is to achieve samatvam, this place of calm, where you're neither elated in success or saddened, depressed by defeat. This is what we were talking about a little earlier. Coming to that place of knowing that sadness, like happiness, does not last forever. You know, in the moment, if you can maintain an equilibrium, a samatva state, that's a yogic state, which allows you to do what? Well, first of all, you're not responding emotionally then, are you? If you can remain calm in the face of exciting new developments, and just as calm when everything is taken away from you, well, from a practical point of view, it allows you to make a more clear-headed decision about how to respond. Instead of a knee-jerk emotional response, that place of calm, which, by the way, involves good breathing, as long as you're breathing, you might as well chant the Maha Mantra, allows you to process things and come out with a response that is more reasoned, more seasoned, so there's two ways of looking at this. One is cold-hearted samatva, and the other is warm-hearted. Cold-hearted would mean being indifferent. I reject it all. I don't care to deal with it. I don't want to even consider it. That's a kind of cold-hearted indifference to things, and we know better than that. The other is what you might say an undifferentiated not indifferent, but an undifferentiated assessment of things. Where it's all, you process everything that happens to you through the lens of your search for God. That's a difficult thing to do, but it's a beautiful thing. If you can come to that place where the achieving of a relationship or the dissolution of a relationship or the lack of a relationship the achieving of good fortune or the lack of good fortune, where it all becomes an impetus for seeing the presence of God, that's a, that's a very elevated place. 
You can't get there just by academic study. You have to chant. <laughs> you have to actually live the life. You have to walk the talk. It's the only way it happens. It doesn't happen any other way. The foundational philosophy here, I'm going to talk for another few minutes, and then we're going to just discuss things. The foundational idea here is that we are by nature the soul within the body. We're not the product of the material elements around us. So we're already different. We're different from the events of our lives. This is something you and I were talking about, John. It reaches a point when you've chanted sincerely long enough and you've distanced yourself from harmful habits effectively enough that your vision of other people actually changes. You were describing for me how when you get, you can look at someone and the immediate reaction you have looking at someone is the kind of karmic response. The, the interaction is actually only of senses and sense objects. You're not even there. What's occurring there is the material nature responding to itself. So if your particular combination of gunas, you know, passion and goodness, somehow meshes with someone else's guna karma mix, there's an attraction. Which is why not everyone is attracted to the same people. What may attract you may not attract me because your guna karma formula is different from mine. That's all happening on the level of senses and objects of the senses. You, the soul within this body, you're not even taking part in any of that. Now that's a little difficult to understand. What do you mean I'm not taking part? I'm right here. I'm right here. Of course I'm doing this. Look, I'm hitting my fist. You mean I'm not doing that? There's some will involved. There's some exercise of free will. But once you make the determination to do something, it's the material nature that takes over. That, that we have no control over. That's an interaction of the elements of nature. And knowing that evokes a dispassionate view of things which metaphorically is like seeing pebbles and gold the same. Essentially, it means that we stop judging. You stop accepting and rejecting. You learn that it all has a place in our spiritual practice. Very, very, very difficult place to go. To reach that kind of level, it takes very, very sincere effort. I've had the experience in my own devotional life of not chanting or chanting indifferently. And I'd have to say that the result was that I found myself more vulnerable to bad habits. I found myself responding to people more judgmentally, you know, kind of being more harsh in my assessment of other people, and generally discontent with my life. 
just from inattentive chanting. <laughs> you know. Because, why? Because I wasn't recognizing that this is a relationship. You know, the names of God are a relationship. That attentive chanting translates into everything else. A pebble and a piece of gold are both energy of God. How can you possibly understand that or know what to do with that if you yourself are indifferent to your own spiritual practices? So look out for diet. Be very careful about what you eat. Be careful with how much you eat. Take time to reflect on a meal before you consume it. In other words, don't eat. Don't eat. Honor the Lord's prashadam. Honor the Lord's mercy. Now, eating becomes a part of your spiritual life. Don't just get up in the morning and go on. Honor the day <laughs> with a prayer. Make the day sanctified with prayer. Every, you, can make, you can do that with everything. And the person being described in this verse, here it says, a person is said to be established in self-realization and is called a yogi or mystic. Yukta it yuchate yogi is the Sanskrit. When he is fully satisfied by virtue of acquired knowledge and realization. Fully satisfied because the knowledge that we have is now ju not just academic knowledge, it is realized knowledge. It's something I can put into practice. That can only happen through spiritual discipline. Um, I was in California last week visiting with uh, a god brother of mine who is a disciple of a wonderful spiritual master who passed away, I think, in 1998, named Srila Puri Maharaj. And um, my brother Ramdas was telling me that his spiritual master, before he would begin chanting, he would take his beads and he would touch them to his forehead. He would honor those beads. Those beads are Krishna. And I realized, oh my gosh, I've been using my beads as an object Wow, isn't that something? That's why devotees never, ever, ever put their beads or the Bhagavad Gita directly on the floor. This, this is Krishna, this book. This isn't paper and ink. <laughs> Not anymore. This is worshipable, this book. Now, that may be hard to understand. The book isn't talking to us. It doesn't necessarily have a face. We don't see that it's a person somehow. And yet it is non-different from Krishna. And the more we purify ourselves by being careful about diet, by sanctifying everything we do, by chanting, the more that reality will reveal itself to us. And that's the important thing to understand. You don't progress spiritually. Your spiritual progress is given to you. It is revealed to you when you are prepared. When you have earned it, you receive it. That's a very important thing to understand. 
And in that sense, I guess I can say this, bhakti is the diametric opposite of yoga. Yoga talks about union, about the oneness of things. Bhakti, the, the word bhakti, this, the, the root of the word bhakti, bhaj, means separate. Not union, but separate. Because without separation of the lover and the beloved, how can there be an exchange of love? The bhaj root has two, has many definitions. My friend Satyaraj was explaining this to me. Another meaning is to share which also suggests that there's a separation. You can't share if there isn't anyone to share with. <laughs> so we don't achieve realization. It is bestowed upon us. The bhakti understanding is that there is the lover and the beloved and when we have given our heart, then it is reciprocated and the knowledge is revealed. This is in Bhagavad Gita also. When one is I dwelling within their hearts, Krishna says, eradicate with the, the, the blazing light of knowledge the darkness born of ignorance. I dwelling within the heart eradicate the darkness of ignorance with the blazing light of knowledge. It is revealed, it's given, it's a gift. So it's a wonderful verse here. Right. Otherwise, someone can question, well, how is it that Krishna is telling Arjuna, see, everything is equal, and now go and go, go kill the Kauravas? Where, where's the equal vision in that? Right. How is that seeing equally if now these people are good and they should be protected and those people are bad and I should kill them? Where's the equality in that? So it has to be realized through proper sadhana or devotional practice. Haridas Thakur um, was born in a Muslim family and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appointed him the Acharya or the exemplar of the chanting of the holy names uh, and he chanted about 20 or 22 hours a day but he wasn't illiterate no. I don't remember the name of the devotee uh, who was embraced by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But there were many in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's circle who were not scholars. I mean, for the most part, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's leading disciples were married people with their jobs and their business and their families, and they weren't erudite scholars. The Goswamis were scholars.
being devotional, being committed, being challenged. But I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like I've heard it in a different way before. I feel like a lot of what you're saying is you really appreciate what you're thinking really about. Here is an opportunity. Now you can go try these things as a way to experience that realized part of it. So it's just a different way I feel like you're taking it. Um, yeah, I think that, yes. Yes, I would, I would agree with the way you just described that. Um, and, and it's not quite so mystical, you know, it's like, ooh, all of a sudden I have this, you know, flash of realization, you know, and God has illuminated me. You know, it's, it's not, not quite like that, although that may be possible for some people. But for most of us, it'll happen in a somewhat more predictable way. Namely, something that seemed impossible to resolve because you thought you had exhausted all avenues of resolution, all of a sudden there are these new avenues you never considered before. You know that example uh, that I talk about in the uh, presentation of my brother's string theory I, uh, uh, lecture of the ant on the line? Uh, if you're not familiar with this example, if you imagine an ant walking back and forth on a line that's a two-dimensional universe. The ant only has two possibilities, backwards and forwards. If you go up closer and you see that it's a, a length of garden hose, you have to go up very close and you see that there's another dimension. It's hidden because you can't see it with your ordinary senses, but you go up close. Now the ant has options. It can go around that length of hose in one direction, around the hose in the other direction, drill a hole, the ant can go inside and there are more options there. So those hidden dimensions are there. I think that's a little bit like what spiritual realization is, that there are hidden dimensions to the events of our lives that we just don't see when we look at them with our everyday tools of perception. When we give something of ourselves back to God, back to Krishna, some of those hidden dimensions start to reveal themselves. And things that otherwise seemed absolutely impossible. Okay, now all of a sudden, we're stepping back away and there's this larger context. Specifically, God's plan. <laughs> you know, that's what we usually lose sight of. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the relationship, whatever the challenge may be, we don't usually think of it as having a role to play in our spiritual practice. Try it and see what the difference is. Try it and see what happens. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and it, it, it's revealed as something that may seem intellectual or mundane or some kind of a, 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 um, an equation that this doesn't compute. Ah, here's the missing element, now it's computing. Right? Well, where did it come from? If you were angry about it, bitter about it, tense about it, you're cutting off certain inner faculties from analyzing that situation more deeply. While you're not what?
Yeah, yeah. If if we bear in mind this background to our lives, that that's not always evident, then it gives us that little bit of an impetus to just see something in a different way, and that's that's spectacular. That makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, well, I think you're right, actually. You know, if you, if you look traditionally at the life of the yogis, bear in mind that when Krishna and Arjuna are speaking here, according to different calculations, three, four, five thousand years ago, if you wanted to be a yogi, you, you did leave, you did move away from material acquisitions and so on. But what kind of a world was it at that time also? There was no global village. You know, things were very, you know, these kingdoms were very tightly in a condensed geographic area. So that was pretty much where the action was, you know. And to be spiritual, you just left that aside. And you went to the forest, went to the woods, what makes the Gita such a revolutionary document is what Krishna says earlier, that the real sannyasi, the real renunciant, is one who is involved with the world, not one who does not light any fires. In other words, get involved. And even though there may be a verse like this, sees all as equal, he's not telling Arjuna, therefore renounce everything. The world is different. This, this was the turning point right here to what would eventually become the interactive, interdependent world that we know today. This, this is historically a critically important moment. So things have changed. So in addition to everything else, we have to see it within its his, historic context as well, that it's not the Vedic age, you know, when the prescribed method for achieving Krishna consciousness, God consciousness, was to go away and meditate for years and years and years. We can't do that. Arjuna admitted, I can't do that. Coming up later in this chapter, <laughs> Arjuna says, I, I can't do that. <laughs> I, said, I, can't, I can't control my mind a little and you know, sit for five minutes. So I am I addressing your question? 
The money thing is tricky because in a world that is as problematic as ours, money can help address problems. So we can't just turn our back on it and selfishly say, I'm not going to get implicated in any of that. I'm just going to go for my own spiritual awakening. You know, spiritual life isn't about, it's, it's not all about you. <laughs> you know, it ain't about you. <laughs> you know, it's about what you do for others. So in that frame of mind, you can uh, uh, amass a vast fortune and still be detached from it. Properly detached. This is what the Goswamis of Vrindavan called yukta vairagya. The word for detachment in Sanskrit is vairagya. There's two kinds of vairagya. There's markata vairagya and yukta vairagya. Markata means monkey. Monkeys live naked in the trees. So they appear to be very detached. But their business is food and sex. <laughs> so we probably yeah, that's their business. Yukta vairagya, appropriate renunciation, means that you engage everything in Krishna's service. Everything has a place in devotion. That's appropriate renunciation. Not for yourself. You don't take it for yourself. You take it to engage. A good verse, huh? Really, really... Some powerful stuff in this one. Really, really powerful stuff. Okay, let's have strawberries. Don't have a strawberry? Let's, I'll tell you what, before the strawberry, can we chant a little bit more? Sure. Is that all right? I, I think so. I think chanting is better than anything else. So let's do that. You want to play? Shall we play? You want to lead the chanting? Can we do this into Krishna the chant? Oh, yeah, just start again. Start again.
That's a lovely place to be at where we stop putting ourselves down for not being better yogis. 
You know, we stop putting ourselves down for not having made more progress sooner, more effectively right now. You know, that's uh, uh, a mentality that's been drilled into us from childhood, you know, growing up in this culture. That's how you. That's how you evaluate things in this world. You know, price, speed, how easily digestible it is. Uh, you know how much it's recognized by others, you know, and what's fascinating about Krishna consciousness or spiritual life is that it can very, success in your spiritual life can very often resemble material failure. So if you, <laughs> you look at it externally, it may look like it's a total waste but you cannot judge what's going on internally. And over time, it reveals itself. Spiritual progress can sometimes look like material failure. So don't judge it. Not, not by any external standard. Because you, know, you may wake up tomorrow and you realize what that was all about by grace. Thank you, very nice. Now let's have a strawberry. I think we may skip our teeth this evening. Just, just we'll have our strawberries. How's that? All right? Okay, great. Hmm? And grapes. Right. Strawberries and grapes. Double header. Uh, Angel, would you like to help pass them out? Sure. Thank you.